We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. This morning we come upon a very familiar text to us, one that many of you have probably memorized. Uh, This is a text that's been a source of comfort for many, many sinners, um, really since the time that Jesus uttered these words, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This text here is especially comforting considering the context that it's found in. Last week, we dealt with a heavy passage We saw that in verses 20 through 24, Jesus pronounced judgment against the inhabitants of the cities who did not believe and therefore did not repent. It was a message of warning to those who heard but failed to respond. This morning, we come to a different passage, a passage and a message of hope, of comfort, To all of us. Now, having said that, I I want us to just listen to this caution here. Those of you who have been with us regularly, worshiping for week after week, maybe month after month, or maybe a couple of years, we know you know that we practice what we call expository preaching, which means we preach through the Bible books consecutively, explaining, and we want to apply scripture in its biblical context in order to understand the heart of the divine author and the earthly author who wrote these texts so that we may properly apply these truths in our life. We allow God to shape our understanding of God how he sees fit. We don't pick and choose in order to construct our idea of who God is. We submit to the text of Scripture. And this morning here, we come to, like I said, a hopeful passage, but also a very challenging passage, a very challenging passage. And my prayer is that we may learn who Jesus is. My prayer is that we may look to Christ and worship Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus that we construct for ourselves, not the Jesus that is preached by the world, but this Jesus here. And that's why when we consecutively go, when we come upon a passage like we find here, we need to deal with it. And this morning we are going to deal with it. And my prayer is that we don't worship Jesus of our making, but one that is revealed in God's holy word as a result of this study here this morning. I want us to read, beginning with verse 24. Matthew eleven 24, we'll read through the end of the passage. Jesus continues his rebuke and his denunciation of these cities, unrepentant cities, and he concludes by saying this in verse 24. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, 
Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, as we consider these six verses here before us, I want us to wrap our sort of minds around this, this big idea, this proposal here that that I believe these verses offer. And that is this, we can only know the father by believing in his son who graciously invites all who humbly sense their need for him. We can only know God, we can only know the father through his son and we come to the son by faith and we come sensing our desperation We come humbly realizing that we need him. And if we refuse that offer, if we refuse that invitation, we have no place to go. There is no other offer, no other competing offer. That's it. This is the only invitation that is offered to weary and helpless sinners. So I want us to look at two truths concerning the divine revelation, and then we're going to look at this sweet invitation in verses 28 through 30. Two truths. First truth is this. The Father reveals the gospel, the truth of the gospel only to the humble. The Father reveals the truth of the gospel only to the humble. Look at verse 25. At that time, and we need to stop here and consider the context. Consider this transition. Jesus has just announced judgment, as I say, against the city who did not repent in light of his numerous, really countless miracles which were performed in their midst. He said that, listen, it would be more tolerable for Sodom that was burned by fire in Genesis, it would be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than it would be for you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, because you failed to connect the dots. Because you failed to realize who I am, Jesus says. And immediately, think about this, immediately after announcing these things in verses 20 through 25, Jesus breaks out in song. He starts to worship God. That's not the time when we would normally begin to you know, look for praise songs. The, the timing here seems very strange. Remember the context. He begins to speak to the crowds. Look with me at Matthew 11, verse, 20, verse 7. As the disciples of John leave to go and report back to John, he turns, Jesus turns to the crowds and he begins to speak to the crowds and he continues to speak to the crowds throughout the entire, throughout the rest of this chapter. We can only imagine 
what the crowds think of this transition. Why is he praising, why is he worshiping God? But not only is the timing strange, the reason for this praise is also very surprising. He says, I praise you, Father. Why is Jesus praising Father in verse 25? That or because you choose to hide things from people. You hide things from some people and you reveal things to others. Wow. He says, I praise you. This, this term here, praise, is often translated as confess when it's dealing in the context of our sin. When we come to God and in the context of sin, we confess our sin. But when it comes in the context of God offering him praise, offering him worship, it, it refers to the singing of praise. So it is to publicly acknowledge and agree with Either God's definition of sin, so when we sin, we come and we confess and saying, yes, Father, yes, Lord, this is sin. I agree with your definition of sin, but also when we come and praise God, we praise him for his absolute sovereignty. And so Jesus here, he is rejoicing and agreeing with the Father that he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right after saying, it'll be bad for you, because you do not accept me. He turns around and says, Father, I agree with that plan. I agree with your wisdom. I agree with your sovereignty. You know, already in this, in this uh, gospel here, Jesus had referred to Father as his Father on three occasions. He does that in, in Matthew 7. He does that in 10 twice in, in 10, my father, he says, my father, here Jesus, the son of God, praises him for his absolute sovereignty. He says, I praise you, father, Lord, master, one who exercises dominion, not just in heaven, but on earth, master of heaven and of earth. Jesus, the son, delights in the fact that the father has absolute control over all things. And he delights in the fact that nothing can frustrate the plan of God, including men and women who fail to repent, men and women who fail to recognize, men and women who reject him. Right now, he sits, stands here at the end of verse 24, and he's saying, I am being rejected right now. He turns around to the Father and says, I praise you, Father, because your plan will never be thwarted. You see what's at play here? He delights in the fact that nothing, nothing in this world can frustrate God's plans. One theologian, he says this, somehow and somewhere, behind and above a discouraging world, stands a poised father completely in control and utterly unfrustrated. This seems chaotic. Jesus comes on the scene. He does all these miracles. He does all of this to point to himself. Say, I'm the Messiah. And even John here is wondering, are you the one? Are you the one? And Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for them than for you because you do not recognize me. And Jesus says, 
I praise you, Father, because we're going according to the plan. Things are going according to the plan. Nothing will frustrate you. While some may conclude that Jesus' mission is going off course, Jesus takes a moment to pause and to praise because his plans are not frustrated. Why is he praising, Father? Why is he praising his Father? Look at verse 25. I praise you, Father, that, that, because, because you hide certain things from some people and you reveal certain things to others. He praises the Father for concealing the truths from the proud, from hiding truths from the proud. Think about this. He says, I praise you, Father, for hiding these things. What are these things? Well, contextually, these things are the things for which Jesus denounced the cities, namely the things that they needed to see and to understand in order to repent. The things, right, the the significance of Jesus's ministry and miracles, the implication of John's ministry, they do not see it. These things are hidden from them. The truth that Jesus claims to be, I am the Messiah. Generally speaking, they are the truths of the gospel which lead to repentance and faith. All of these things, the proud cannot see and cannot comprehend. I praise you, Father, because you hide these truths from the wise and intelligent. The wise and intelligent. Who are these wise and intelligent men? Literally, intelligent, those who are quick to comprehend, those who are quick to understand. They're they're wise. Specifically here, Jesus refers to those who have a reputation of being wise, who are self-reliant and who are convinced that they have all the wisdom necessary. They have no need of divine wisdom. They are convinced that they can draw their own conclusions because they are wise. They are quick to calculate because they're intellectual geniuses. They, they don't need anyone's input. They don't want to accept correction. They don't want to follow another road, another way. They are right in their own eyes. They are wise and intelligent. Really, they are the proud ones. Jesus Here, he does not condemn intellectual ability. He condemns here intellectual pride. Who says, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't need you to tell me how to respond. I know. I can figure it out on my own. I can choose my own way to get to God. My own way to get to heaven. I don't need you to give me the directions. This is the characteristic of the childish generation that we looked at last week that Jesus describes here that does not accept God's appointed ways of pleasing him. And this, in fact, is the characteristic that describes our very generation also. We are not a teachable generation. We are very proud. We are convinced that our way is the best even if our way is going straight to hell. Many people will be convinced in hell. 
This is the way. Jesus here praises the Father, listen, from hiding and concealing the truth from such men and women. What do we make sense of this? Is Jesus happy about their impending doom? Is he rejoicing that this nation is lost and they're going to hell? Well, certainly not. There are so many statements in the Bible where we see Jesus grieved over unbelief. He has compassion. He's calling, come, and he's grieved at their unbelief that they don't see. In fact, later on, we will see in in Matthew chapter 23, he looks at Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, gather you together the way a hand gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of Christ. However, Jesus praises the Father for concealing the truth as a form of judgment against the proud. God, we read in James, is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. Friends, in the wisdom of God, the Father, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, has so determined that the world, through its own wisdom, will not come to know God. It must be of grace the, re- the revelation that we see- receive of God is divine right. It is divine prerogative. People cannot grasp a Christian understanding of God on their own. They can't. They cannot discern who Jesus is and what his kingdom looks like unless, unless God shows it to them. It's clear you hide these things from the proud who think they know where to go and how to get there. Friends, any apprehension, any, any comprehension, any understanding of the gospel is a divine act. You don't choose to know God. God chooses to reveal himself to you. Salvation is God's sovereign act that humbles a proud heart. That's why. You come pleading You don't come on the horse. You come crawling, knowing and understanding your desperate position and situation. You don't come as a conquering king. No, you submit to the king who conquers you. It is his sovereign right. And Jesus rejoices in the fact that it is his father's choice. It is his choice who it is that will understand these truths and who doesn't. Turn with me to Matthew 13. He will repeat again the same truth to his disciples. In Matthew 13, verse 11, Jesus says, tells them, they come, disciples come to Jesus. Matthew 13 is this chapter on the parables of the kingdom and they ask him, why do you speak to them? Why do you speak to the crowds in parables? Because parables are hard to understand. Why don't you just be clear? And and Jesus answered them in verse 11 and says, to you, it has been granted 
to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Why do you speak? Let us all understand. Open up our eyes that we may perceive. To you, it has been granted, but to them it has not been granted. Listen, God grants you some and not others. And if we have a problem with this, friends, then we have a problem with pride. That's what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 11. I hide these things from those who are proud, from those who are wise and intelligent in their own eyes. But he goes on and he says, but, oh, that's not it. You, you reveal them to infants. You reveal the gospel truth. You reveal the significance of the son of Jesus Christ to the infants. He rejoices again at the fact that father He gives knowledge, not to the wise of this world, but to children. And the point here is that God reveals the truth to those who are illustrated here as infants. Infants are helpless, right? They're they're helpless. It's not even, he's not referring here to children necessarily, but infants who can't talk even. Like the wise and intelligent, they can give you all kinds of arguments why they think their way is better than Jesus. They can argue with you. And Jesus says here, I praise you, Father, because you give that understanding of the kingdom to those who can't argue. They can't even talk. They come humble, submissive. God gives grace to the humble. They don't argue. They simply believe and they rely on others. They, they humbly acknowledge. When, it, when an infant cries out, he acknowledges his need for the parent. I need you, he cries out. And the parent is ready there to help and to assist and to fulfill that cry, to answer that longing. As, as babies, they cling to their mothers and fathers and cry, this is what the father wants from Israel. I sent my son, how come you're not crying out like an infant? You turn around and you show me your back as if you have it all figured out. I can't, I'm not gonna reveal myself to you. He gives grace to the humble. Now, this doesn't mean that the wise and intelligent people are never saved. That's not what he is referring to here. No, many are saved, smart people, PhDs, grade point average is 4.7. It's not about your mind, right? It's not about that stupid people get into heaven only. Fools, no, that's not what he's saying here. Paul, consider Apostle Paul, how intellectual he was. But all the wise and intelligent, friends, they must come through as infants. They must come through as babies. They must acknowledge the fact that their way is not God's way, and they must cry out for God to intervene and for God to open and for God to accept. Intelligent people can come, but they must come in as infants. And then look at verse 26. He says, yes, Father, 
Yes, Father. Why does God choose to operate this way, friends? Hiding truth from some, revealing it to others. Why? Why? He says, man, because it's good in your sight. Yes, Father, verse 26, this was well-pleasing in your sight. We, we want to get more satisfactory answer. We, we want to get something more convincing and something more logical. Explain to us why, Lord. But Jesus says, ah, Father, yes, this was literally a good pleasure in your sight. This way of dealing with sinners was a good pleasure in your sight. He celebrates the fact that men on their own cannot know God. They need divine humbling and enabling. Such is the Father's will. That's how the Father determined to save the humble and to humble the proud. In Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul wrestles with this idea of God's predestination, predestining people and calling and electing and saving them. Look what he says in in Ephesians chapter one. He says, in love, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Why? According to the kind intention of his will, he wanted to. Our God wanted to. It pleased him. To the praise of the glory of his grace. He wanted to elevate his grace. That's why he chose to do it this way. And then he continues on and he says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Why? According to his purpose. That's why he wanted to. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. Who tells God what to do? Paul says, well, God does what he does because of his good purpose and because of his good will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In, in Romans chapter 9 verse 15, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is what God does. Listen, friends, God delights in saying no to the proud. God delights in saying no. He refuses to let the arrogant come into the kingdom on their own means. Salvation is not a right. Salvation is a privilege. Salvation is a privilege. Friends, we may naturally have objections to the idea that the idea of God's sovereign choice that this sovereign choice is strictly based on his own goodwill and his own good pleasure. We may struggle with it, but in the end, we must be humbled by God's wisdom and take notice of the fact that Jesus didn't struggle with it. The son didn't struggle with it. He looked to God and he says, I praise you, Father. He didn't look to the father, and he says, why am I being rejected here? Why do you make it so hard for them to understand and for them to get in? Why? No, he praises God. He praises the father. Jesus here wants the humble to hear and to understand. In in pronouncing judgment here, he is warning them that God opposes the proud. Friends, be humble 
because he gives grace to the humble. But it's interesting, none of us will be humble until the Lord humbles us, right? It's the paradox. All of us are proud. When we read Isaiah 53, right, each of us has gone to his own way. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means I tell God that my way is better. That's what it means. I choose my own way, how I want to live this life. What is That's pride. That's pride. And it takes God to get us off of our high horse. And instead of jumping and galloping into the kingdom, we come humbly to the Son and realize that only He gets us in. The Father reveals the truth of the gospel only to the humble, for that is His good pleasure, friends. That's how He deemed necessary. You can't rely on your own knowledge. You can't rely on your own resources, and it pleases the Son. The second truth concerning divine revelation I want us to see in verse 27 is this. The Father reveals the truth of the gospel only through His Son. Only to the humble and only through His Son. In verse 27 here, Jesus is no longer praying. We can see that because of the switch of pronouns here. In verse 27, now he wants the crowd to know something. And here's what he wants them to know. Listen up. He says, I have the divine right to reveal God to you. Can you believe someone making this claim? Coming on the scene, people who were worshiping God for generations, decades, millennium. And he stands here and he says, I have the right and I alone, to show you the way to the Father. How arrogant. Unless you're God, right? Unless you're God. Unless God comes and he says, I know the way to God. Why? Because I am God. I am God. He speaks here of his intimate and exclusive relationship with the Father. He says here, All things, we'll come back to this, have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows. The Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. That's it. The the knowledge that Jesus speaks here of is is intimate relationship. It's not just factual knowledge. Yeah, I know about that. I know about God through, you know, the first five books of Moses and then all the narratives and prophecy. I, I, I have a slight idea of who God is. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about intimate knowledge, personal relationship with God. He knows him personally and vice versa. Because the Son is divine, only the divine Father knows Him. In other words, God knows God. And then He adds, no one else knows. No one else can perceive. No one else can understand the true identity of both the Father and the Son. There's just an exclusive relationship. This is the Trinity. He will later on 
begin to speak about the spirit, especially in the gospel of John. This trinity here, no one can comprehend. It's a perfect union, intimate union, and no one gets in except, except. All things, he says, have been handed over to me by my father. Jesus here makes the claim that a son, among all the other things that he has the right to do, authority, authority to judge, authority to forgive sins, here in this context, he is speaking of the divine right that he has to reveal God to you. No one knows this intimate relationship. No one can get in, but I have the right to introduce you to the Father. This is amazing. No one knows except the son and anyone to whom the son wills, wills, divine will. If I wish, then I will. I will disclose the father to you. I mean, do, do you get this? The son, Jesus has the right to take men to God. Jesus alone can introduce you and give you divine revelation. You can't arrive at it on, our, on your own. That's why John, in John 1.18, John writes, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained, he has revealed the Father to us, disclosed him, revealed God to us. Who? Jesus. The only God we know is Jesus. Jesus shows us the Father. That's why he goes on, and in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Usually we stop right there, but he continues on. He says, no one, no one, no one comes to the Father but through me. You, you want to claim that you know God? Do you know me? I'm the only one who can introduce you to God. You... you, you you can't introduce yourself to the Father. You cannot directly approach God. Only the Son can. I mean, think about the implications for the Jews, right? They were claiming to know God because they were children of Abraham and had the law of God. They were claiming to be pleasing to God, but they weren't even on speaking terms with Jesus. Every time they spoke, there was an argument. They were always challenging one another. What was the point that Jesus making here? Israel, you do not know God. You must have a relationship with me to know the Father. Only I can reveal him to you. Here's the point. It takes God to know God. And it takes God to reveal God and no one else can. Friends, we... We cannot know the Father without the Son. We cannot claim, right? Anyone who claims to know God, to worship God, and Jesus is not the God they worship, well, then they don't know God. They don't know God. No man can reason his way to the divine because every man is darkened, we read in Ephesians, in his understanding. And it takes God to break through, to reveal the Son. And here we find out that the Son breaks through 
and reveals his glory. And later on, we find out that it's the spirit who illumines the mind. The entire Trinity is involved in disclosing Trinity to us. We can't do it on our own. Remember what later on will come to this passage in, in Matthew 16. Jesus poses a question to the disciples. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So they're offering all kinds of questions, and Peter's like, uh-uh, me, me, pick on me, you know? And then Jesus picks on him, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, amen. But let me tell you something. You didn't get this truth on your own. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It is not your intellect. It is not your wisdom. But my Father who is in heaven, the Father reveals himself. And here we find out that the Son reveals the Father. This is what he's talking about. And friends, we who are sitting here, how privileged are we to know God this morning? We who see and who understand who Jesus is, we who have been shown great mercy and grace, I think the application here for us is to sit here and to marvel and to thank God and to praise God, do exactly the same thing that Jesus is doing, worshiping God because he revealed himself to us. Because we know Christ. He did not leave us to figure this out on ourselves, in our own pride, in our own arrogance. No, he crushed it. He smashed it. He made himself known to us. What a grace. What a grace. Let's imitate Christ in worshiping God for such grace. But Jesus is not done here. Jesus is not done. Because if we go to Matthew 11, there is no break in Jesus' speech here in between verse 27 and 28. I want you to see the the impact of these last verses in light of what just happened. I mean, Jesus had just reprimanded the cities for not repenting, for not praising, right, the Father, for not praising the Son. And Jesus turns around and praises the Father and claims that he alone, and he alone has the right to reveal the Father to the humble. And now Jesus Jesus turns around and offers the sweetest invitation ever recorded, I think, in all of Scripture, coming from Jesus' lips. He didn't just shut the book and he says, well, there you go. Become humble and then we'll move on from there. No, he, right after denouncing the cities, he turns to the very cities and he says this in verse 28, come to me, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To the same people that he told, you can't come. You're not coming because you're proud. Jesus turns around and he says, come. Keep coming. So let's look finally at three. The, the son reveals the truth of the gospel by inviting the humble 
to come to him. Church, we need to marvel at the sweet grace of our Lord. They have continually rejected his invitation. And yet he continues to offer opportunities. In the midst of judgment, come. And wasn't it the same with us? And how many times did we spurn God's grace, God's call, God's invitation? And Jesus continued to be kind and gracious to us and saying, come. I've been breaking you down. Come and find rest for your souls. Come and behold him. Look at the invitation. Come to me. Come to me. This is significant. He is not telling them, go to the temple. He's not telling us, go to church. He's not even telling them, go to God. Come to me. Come to Jesus. In light of Matthew 11 and 12, Jesus says, believe in who I claim to be and what I I am able to do for you. Friends, we are invited to come to Jesus and come to know him. He just says, I only I know the Father. I have this intimate relationship with the Father, and guess what? I have authority to open up this relationship and invite you in to the fellowship of the Trinity. Isn't that just factual information? You're going to experience the same kind of intimacy and the same kind of joy and peace that the Father and I experience, you come to me. I can give you rest. He alone knows the Father, so the Son invites you to know him, friend, that you may know God. You want to know God? Come to Jesus. Don't reject him. Recognize the Son for who he is, merciful Savior. But who is he inviting to come? Come, he says, all. There's a qualification here. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden. Certainly the context here, right, these burdens that he's talking about, they, they probably refer to the, what he calls heavy loads the Pharisees were putting on the people. For instance, in Matthew 23, verse 4, he says, they, they, Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. For the Jews, their, their religion became the, this great burden. It, was, it became a matter of just endless regulations and duties. They they labored under the horrible burden of trying to earn God's righteousness, of trying to earn God's favor by the works of the law. But we know from Galatians that by the works of the law, what? No flesh will be justified. But in general here, this weariness that he's talking about is, is complex. We are worn out because of guilt and shame and consequences of our own sin. I mean, we are burdened every day with heartbreaks and failures and temptations and trials. We 
We're burdened by the cares and, and sorrows and disappointments and all kinds of frustrations. The weariness here that he's addressing here is not just physical weariness where we come after a hard day of, of work and we just plop on our couch and we're like, oh, we're resting. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about soul rest, right? You will find rest for your souls, not just your bodies, for your souls. It's one thing for the body to be tired, but when your soul is worn out, it's altogether different. You can't keep going. You're done. You've been brought low. You're exhausted from the labor under the curse of sin. This is what he's talking about. You have been humbled. You realize that you can never please God on, by just trying to do these things on your own. And Jesus says, come. When, if you feel this way, all of you who feel this way, come. Come. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're moral or if you're immoral, just come. All come. Augustine said, Lord, thou hast made us for yourself, and we can find no rest till we find rest in you. And what is the promise? The promise is you will find rest for your souls. I will give you rest. That's the promise. The invitation is come. The qualification is all, all who are burdened, heavy laden. I will give you rest. That's the promise. The nation of Israel here has been promised rest, right? Since the very beginning, since God took them out of Egypt. But through Egypt, through all the wilderness, even in promised land, they have been booted out again and again because of their disobedience to God. They never experienced that rest. But Jesus here promises not only to give them peace and bodily rest, but soul rest. You will no longer feel the guilt and shame of your sin. I will remove that. You will rest peacefully knowing that you have a Savior who deals with all of your adversities. And then in verse 29, as if to restate what he said. So I think verse 29 is not in addition to what he says in verse 28, but it's parallel. For instance, come to me, verse 28, is paralleled with take my yoke upon you and learn from me. All who are weary and heavy laden is I am gentle and humble in heart. And I will give you rest as parallel, then you will find rest for your souls. It's a repetition of the same command, of same invitation. Come to me. And then he says, take my yoke. Take my yoke and learn from me. Which, which brings up an interesting question, right? Is Jesus promising us rest or is he calling us to work? He just says, come, I'll give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke. You know what a yoke is? A yoke was this wooden, large wooden um, brace or a cross beam that you put over the shoulders of two oxen or three, however many, right? To keep them moving in unison and to work together and to spread this load, right? It's not egg yolk. Yoke. You are bound together with somebody in order to walk a straight line. 
And in order to split the load that you're pushing, usually a plow behind you. And he says, take my yoke. So is he offering us work or rest? Notice that Jesus is not telling us to go yokeless. Take off this yoke and roam freely. That's not what he's telling us. No, he says, you need to take the yoke. Jesus says, I have a yoke, my own yoke. But what is it? What work is he asking us to do in light of what he's been saying here? And notice that in verse 30, he qualifies this yoke and he says, actually, my yoke is very different from the yoke that you are under. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So there's that for us to consider. But what work is he asking us to do? Well, I think what we read in John 6, John 6 really answers the question of what yoke we're supposed to take and what work we're supposed to do. In John 6, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him. Work? Believe? Yeah. Believe in him. Believe in Jesus. That is the work that we're supposed to be doing. In him whom I sent. And in John 15, verse 4, he says, abide in me. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of its own unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The call here, friends, is to believe and it is to abide. That is the work that he's calling us to do. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. To come to Jesus is to believe and it is to rest on the promises of God. It is to believe that Jesus did all the work for us and now is granting us rest. It is to believe that he alone not only addresses, friends, not only addresses our, the issue of sin, but is able to supply grace for every need. So this is not only just to enter Believe, it is to abide. It is for those of you Christians who are struggling in life, who are just frustrated maybe, frustrated with sin and the effects of sin, frustrated with temptations. The call here is to continue to abide in Christ because he buries that burden. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, my God will supply all your needs according to what? His riches according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Continue to abide in Christ. And he says, learn from me, learn from me. The invitation is to come and to believe and to learn. Learn of Christ. Learn of Christ. John 13 or John 17, three, right? He says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Come and learn me, Jesus says. To know Christ is to have eternal life. But the Christian disciple not only learns of Jesus, he also learns from Jesus. Jesus is not only the, the subject of our learning, right? He is the teacher that teaches us what we ought to learn. And when we abide in him, when we abide in his love, well, then John 10, Jesus says, then you obey my commandments. You obey my commandments. And then 1 John chapter 5 says that his commandments are not burdensome. 
His commandments are not burdens. We enter discipleship with Christ through faith and believe and resting in him, and we continue to obey Christ. I love what Michael Green said, speaking in terms of discipleship and obeying Christ's commandments. He said this, it is not, it is the response rather of the liberated, not the duty of the obligated. Our faith, right, and our obedience, our obedience to Christ's command is the response of those who were freed of the liberated, not the duty of the obligated. And what is the ground for this invitation and this promise? Well, the ground and the invitation is the person of Jesus Christ. I am gentle and humble in heart. This is the only passage in all of scripture where Jesus specifically addresses what his heart is like. And when it comes to that, he says, I am gentle and I am humble in heart. You know what we find when we come to Jesus is that Jesus is not like that master like the Pharisees were and the teachers of the law. Because as we read in Matthew 23, the teachers of the law, they bound heavy burdens on people. But what was Jesus' accusation? Is that they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. That's the accusation. They don't do anything. The difference between them and Christ is that Christ does all the work, friends. Christ does all the work. He is humble in heart. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, we read in Philippians chapter two. He became lowly. Jesus is humble, therefore only the humble receive his rest. He offers it to those who are worn out. Come, I, come I'll give it to you freely. And he is gentle, he is meek. He's not harsh with those who come under his yoke. And he pulls for them. Right? He delivers them. He helps them. That's what Jesus does. Church, our, our path to rest runs through Jesus. That's it. So come and keep coming. Believe and abide is the message. As we conclude and pray, we need to behold. Behold the divine revelation and the sweet invitation. You know, the question is always asked when dealing with a text like this or maybe Ephesians chapter 1 or Romans chapter 9. Who chooses first? Who chooses first? I was, I was leading youth group before GY and I've had plenty of conversations with, with youth. When we were dealing with passages like that about election, they would say, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know? Who chooses first? And Jesus says, right, come. Jesus says, you can't. God reveals, I reveal, but then he says, come. I think the right answer is that he chooses and we come. That's the paradox. He chooses and we come. 
Look, John 6, 37 again. That's why that, that chapter is so vital, and I encourage you to go back and reread it and read it again. John 6, 37 says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What does that mean? That's divine election. The Father has a people for himself, and the Father chooses, and he gives them to the Son. The Father, all that the Father gives, right, will come to me. And... And we oftentimes forget the second part of that verse, and he says, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. So my question, or my answer to, to their question usually goes something like this. Do you want to come? Do you feel the burden of sin? Do you want to trust Christ? Do you want to submit to him instead of looking for your own ways to get saved? Do you want to come? If you want to come, then come. Why? Because the one who comes, he will never cast out. Come. And that's why Jesus here parallels those two. You can't come unless I reveal. Come. Are you there? Do you want to come? Do you want to trust Christ? He says, come. Are you burdened with sin? Are you worn out by the cares and sorrows and all your disappointments and frustrations? Come, believe, and abide, and know for certain that all who come, the promise of Scripture is he will never cast out. Come, decide, make the decision to trust Christ. Friend, do you know someone who's burdened? Maybe you're really resting in the Lord and trusting and you're rejoicing today, but you know of someone who's burdened. What are you going to tell them? What are you going to offer them? kind of invitation will you give them? Same invitation that Jesus, come to him, him. Go to, not necessarily go to church, go to life group, go to this, come to Jesus. Why? Jesus gives rest for your soul. We sing this song, what a friend we have in Jesus, that's exactly what we are presented here. Jesus, who's being rejected, turns around, praises the Father, and then at the same time says, friend, come. I'm ready. Trust me. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And Father, we thank you that Jesus is our Lord because he revealed this truth to us. Help us to continue to come, continue to trust, never trust on our own ability, never submit ourselves under this yoke of slavery again as if we are required to do what Jesus, what only Jesus can do. Oh, let us come and trust him, submit to him, and joyfully obey Christ. What a privilege it is. Help us engrave these truths in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.